example, one of our clients is also in textiles uh, making clothing and they already have uh, QR codes in their labels, which you can scan and then you can see the work that we've done for them. The full analysis of their supply chain, which is called a life cycle assessment, all the way from harvesting raw materials until the expected end of life. What if there were somewhere that we could look to peer into the future of what climate policy, the corporate climate environment would be like here in the United States, if there were somewhere that could give us a roadmap so that we could better understand what's coming. Well, it turns out there is, and that place is called Europe. My name is Lex Faber, and welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. On the podcast today is Joost, the founder and CEO of Hedgehog. Hedgehog is based in Europe. They're based in Amsterdam, and they provide a variety of services to companies that are engaged with different types of climate accounting and climate strategy. And what I love talking with Yost about is how he perceives the way that the, the companies in Europe are handling with the oncoming both regulation and legislation and overall climate so that we can better understand how to react here in the United States. Because we know that they're a little bit farther ahead in Europe when they're thinking about how to incorporate climate into the world of governance. So today, Yost and I sit down and we really dig into what he sees in terms of how Europe is confronting this climate and what we can learn from those experiences here in the United States. And just on a personal note, he's a fantastic guy. Don't let him fool you. Yost is the best. All right. Here's my conversation with the founder and CEO of Hedgehog, Yost. Yost, welcome. Welcome into another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. Thanks. Starting off with a bang, as always, I've gotten to know you now for the last couple of years and you never disappoint. So thank you for bringing the energy. Hey, you're very welcome. And you know that I'm on the other side of the of the big pond, right? So it's four o'clock. Usually you're having a beer at this time when we're having yeah. our, our, you know, 10 a.m., 4 p.m. You don't even know what's in here. Ah, there you go. All right. Well, Yost, you're the uh, founder and CEO of Hedgehog. And I want to just dive right into the deep end first. So we have been talking for a long time about things regarding the forthcoming landscape for climate-related, both regulation and corporate posturing and stance in the United States and in Europe. And these things are very different, right? There's a very different regulatory community and corporations are positioning themselves than actually doing real things around their climate impact in a very different place. Now, you straddle both worlds. So you live in Europe, you live in uh, the Netherlands, and you have clients that are in the United States. So give us an insight into your perspective about how companies are reacting to this regulatory environment and where their priorities lie. I think in, in general with the US-based corporations that we work with, they are mostly trying to sell products on European markets. And at the point in time that you need to be part of some kind of public tender or whatever, or even a, a commercial tender with uh, with other uh, with other buyers. You need to show a kind of environmental product declaration, or you know, a carbon footprint of your product. So you need to prove what the environmental footprint is, and the lower the environmental footprint is, the better opportunities to get, or the higher value they give to you. You know, that so all the US-based customers that we have, clients that we have are only looking for that. And then basically that's it. They're being compliant with having their products on the European market. Well, with our European-based customers, well, first of all, they have other regulations to comply to. And they also, 
appear to be a little bit more intrinsically motivated. And then second, of course, so the obligations that European-based companies have, even US-based companies with European subsidiaries, is also with the CSRD, which is a big one coming up, which yeah, basically obliges all yeah, companies with more than 40 million revenue, 20 million balance sheet or 250 employees or more uh, who have to be fully transparent on their environmental impact and report according to the corporate sustainability reporting directive. So that's that's a big point extra here in the European Union. So it's not surprising at all that the companies in the United States are doing the bare minimum that is necessary in order to meet that threshold. But when you say that there's more of sort of an intrinsic desire or willpower to embed these environmental concerns into the way of doing business, what does that look like? So how, how are you seeing that manifest itself from the European side of these companies? It's kind of a system shift, right? So when a system, a paradigm shift or a system change is, is taking place, there are a lot of different stakeholders that are part of that system change and they all need to kind of move together for the system to change. You cannot be, you know, corporates cannot run fully ahead or, uh, you know, the regulation cannot run fully ahead and the rest must move with it. In general, I think in the EU, we're just a little bit further if you look at the political side of the system. And that also, you know, creates a little bit bigger awareness amongst the consumers. So even the consumers might be a little bit more aware and also uh, yeah, willing to, uh, you know, to pay a little bit of a bigger price. Employees, another important one, you do see a change in what the employees want. So they want to work for a more sustainable organization or at least an organization who is having some kind of plan to, you know, become less bad for the planet in the future. I think we're just a little bit ahead here. You're right. The, the EU has set forth very uh, specific, but also ambitious climate targets. By 2030, they aim to cut greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55% and to be carbon neutral by 2050. And so in some way, that gives us a chance to look into the future from how the United States is going to be reacting to that. Your ecosystem, your corporate ecosystem is a little bit farther into having to prepare for those realities and then having to sort of address them. And there's one aspect about that that I'm really interested in. And this is the idea of a digital product passport. So the EU has declared that um, by 2030, if not before, 2025, there's some preliminary goals around everything that is made in two major categories, textiles and batteries, will have to carry with it a digital product passport. And that will be some sort of barcode or QR code or, or scannable interface that allows the consumer to have a full transparent understanding of all of the carbon emissions involved in the creation of that product, the materials that are used, and other types of information yet to be defined that we know for sure is that effectively you are going to be able to scan something and see what is this, how is it made, and what goes into it. How are you seeing companies over there start to plan for that in terms of what it means for transparency through their supply chain and from reporting to the people that are secondary or tertiary suppliers for their products? Like, What, what are companies doing to get yeah. ready for that future? I think, first of all, there are already organizations that is going into this route. So as just an example, one of our clients is also in textiles uh, making clothing and they already have uh, QR codes in their uh, labels, which you can scan and then you can see the work that we've done for them. What is the work that we've done for them? That's 
the full analysis of the of their supply chain, um, which in our uh, jargon is called a life cycle assessment. Uh, and in a life cycle assessment, we basically take the full uh, production chain, supply chain of a product, uh, all the way from harvesting raw materials until uh, the expected end of life. And that is then to be used in a digital product passport to communicate uh, the environmental impact. So, but that requires companies to know more about how their stuff is made than they used to. And companies like yours to come in and say, all right, we're going to help you make sense of that and we're going to quantify it. Yeah. So there, there's obviously a change of doing business, right? Then there's going to be more costs incurred in some aspect of that because transparency um, requires some degree also of integrity, one would hope. Uh, how, how, in what ways are these companies balancing this idea of we're going to have to make things in some degree that are a little bit more expensive or we're going to have to be a little bit more public about the fact that some of our things are not made with the highest standards or have a detrimental effect in the environment. It's like, how, how is that needle getting thread? Yeah. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does involve a lot of transparency in the supply chain. It involves a lot of researching, uh, of course, with the accompanying investment to yeah to put us to work so to say um but i mean it's also for the organization at least that we work with currently it's also it gives you such a high level of detailed insights that it also gives you a lot of things to work on because it creates insights that you didn't know before uh, so it's also at least from our point of view also a lot of fun when you are doing the type of work that you do which is quantifying taking all these different kinds of inputs, how things are made, where they're made, what they're made out of, and then quantifying that. It feels like that should be something that is relatively objective, like math. However, as is, you know, with all sort of accounting and statistics, there are ways that one might tip the scale. And so we're seeing there being this pretty wide breadth of the methodologies that are used in these types of accounting Proformers or schemes, and there's no real central sense of like credibility, right? There's no one unifying sense of truth, truth like a governing body that says, "Here, you've you've gone wrong by this amount of percent," because that would be just an incredible amount of work to check the homework of all of these companies doing this. So, like, the goal is is a good one. We should know what goes into the products that we made. In order for that information to be useful, it needs to be accurate. How do we introduce objective accuracy into what is currently an incredibly fragmented system? Reliant on self-reporting, I should also say. If we go specifically into this digital product passport, which is part of European uh, legislation, the European Commission or the European Union has also developed a life cycle assessment methodology itself, which is called the PEF, the Product Environmental Footprinting Method. And with the methodology, they are basically building these category, product category specific rules. So textiles being the first and batteries being the second. And then if you use that PEF rule book, that's basically our general methodology. And then, uh, then you're saying, okay, I'm uh, assessing textiles. So you take the product specific rules for textiles. And then it's uh, also accompanied with a uh, with the PEF database, which is currently being filled with uh, environmental references, and that all combined, you know, gives you kind of the toolkit to do these assessments. 
And then all the other companies must use the same toolkit. So at that point in time, you're moving to a more level playing field. Yeah, but then still, you know, it is, uh, I mean, self-auditable or self-assessable. Uh, that's a difficult uh, question, I think, because in the end, the work that we do does require a lot of knowledge and routine and is not something that, you know, the average product designer or marketing manager wants to do or should be doing. So indeed, there is some lack of knowledge there still, which is hopefully being solved over the next coming years with a lot of new fresh university blood or fresh from the university blood, all uh, environmental specialists. So, yeah. Well, we can't have this whole army of consultants go out of business here. So, I mean, like, Someone's, someone's got to keep you happy and smiling at us. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But we don't, you know, that we don't like to call ourselves uh, consultants, right? I mean, sometimes we do for convenience, but we do like to be a bit different, uh, more nice, less uh, suited up and, uh, uh, you know, old boys club. <laughs> Is that just a generational thing where us being millennials or what have you, we sort of are reacting to that old stodgy consultant sewing up into a suit or is it something deeper where the the term itself is is offensive or you know you recoil from it like what i think mr einstein once said like you cannot solve the problems in the same world that you've created them and if i have a look at the bigger consultants i mean they have a a large client base, which I'm personally quite jealous of of course but in that same client base there is a lot of money going around which is being uh, directly related to the old economy uh, and if you serve those clients uh, then at the same time at the other side of the metal you also have to or want to be you know a consultant on the new economy i i'm not sure if that is uh, really working out right this is something i get into all the time with with people um which is this inherent conflict we want the world to be a better place and we want to have that world reflect our values and reflect this idea of a sustainable paradigm. In order to get to that place, we need to work with and change the legacy companies that have created, as you said, this world that we live in. So if we're only focusing on the new economy, we're never going to change the current economy fast enough. We're going to run out of time. And so you have to work with the worst offenders because there's their most opportunity to achieve positive results if you're working with the people that are currently doing the worst. No, I mean, agreed, agreed. And I think, but there is, you know, so there is indeed make, uh, make the green boys uh, bigger and make the brown boys green. And then the brown boys are basically the big, bigger companies. You will always have this conflict of a large company comes to your front door and says, here, let me back up my truck of money to you. And you're going to have to say, no, no, I want not your money because it's too brown. But all money is green, at least in this country. Obviously, you have a little bit more colorful money over there. Yeah. What do you do when that happens, right? What do you do when a client comes to you and says like, yeah, we're brown, we want to be green. I mean, I, how? what is the water's edge of that sort of moralistic line in the sand, Rubicon? I mean, in general, if, if a company, you know, comes to us, so if it is indeed a, a heavy polluter and it really has the ambition uh, to become green, well, we're more than happy to help because then there's the big impact, right? But when it's mm -hmm. a big 
polluter who is just here to, you know, greenwash or whatever, then we either say no or uh, we say we have a special term for that, which is called the fuck you rate. And we just take our normal our normal stuff and then make it twice as big and then say like, okay, you know, all the extra money that we make here, we put back into our company and make sure that we grow so that in the future we can have bigger impact. So wait a minute. Your solution to a moral quandary is like a pure capitalistic, exactly. just financial incentive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That is an interesting framework. Help me look around the corner here about what the future portends. Because I do think that, and I thought this for a long time, like the, Europe is a good case study for half of how the global economy will go. We're seeing a ton of different ways for companies to be green, for lack of a better, more specific term. There's the marketing angle, like FedEx says we're going carbon neutral. And it's very hard to say, well, you still need to to fly planes and drive trucks and all these things. It's hard to see how you're going to do that. There's the carbon credits of the world where companies are buying offsets. And there's been a tremendous amount of scrutiny into the value of those offsets from from an environmental perspective. And there's a lot of greenwashing that goes into that. And then there's the transition aspect where companies are actually investing and doing different things. Now, from your perspective, what I'm very curious about is there's this huge burgeoning sort of sub-economy happening of facilitating all those things that I said and helping companies make strategic decisions. So company X comes to you and says, we need to be green. What do we do? And it's like, well, you can buy offsets. You can change the way you do things, what have you. Some are going to cost more, some are going to cost less. And then there's just the underlying sort of math of let's do the carbon accounting that we that we need to in order to be able to understand this. Here's here's my question. Is there enough differentiation for what these what these consultancy type things are doing to be able to provide a lot of niche services or do you see them sort of all rolling up into some massive type of consulting firms like we have here with the BCGs and the Baines and the McKinsey's that have this whole suite of services and environmental portfolios included in that. But it's just like one part of a relatively large mammoth global organization. Yeah. I mean, there's a wide range of these consulting firms and for the future, I mean, there is some movement here on, I say, merging and acquisition trends that are taking place of organizations or financial firms that want to, you know, pick a few of the smaller ones and put them together to make like a a bigger environmental consultant. But I mean, at the moment, it's not, it's not a saturated. Well, one question is how much of this can be done by software? And you just released a business carbon calculator that allows companies to do a fair amount of this on their own, where they can go to your website, hhc.earth, and put in their own sort of inputs, and then you'll sort of spit them out for free, some some outputs. So all of this sort of baseline fundamental, like you said, doing the, the measurement, how much of that can be, if not automated, at least the first initial step done by software as opposed to having 
uh, a services model where you're paying for a consultant to do it. So we have a kind of a step-by-step work, right? We try to collect information from the supplier. Before the assembly, you have different suppliers of different components. So you want to get information from them. And then ideally, you even want to get information from the second and the third tire suppliers. If you cannot, then you have to do your own research. And at the moment, it's mostly, and also our tools, so software that is basically uh, supporting our work. And that's everything that we see now in the market. And then there are some organizations or some software companies that are trying or are really doing a good job and also building software that product designers can use, for example. But I mean, we also see that for those product designers, it's very difficult to uh, to do those assessments and especially to to hang on to them, you know, to keep doing them. They are enthusiastic in the beginning, but then if you, you know, if you let them go, then, then uh, yeah, it's difficult for them to do it uh, on a recurring basis. I'll be kicking this around in the old noggin for a couple of years. I'm old enough to remember when Web3 was the thing that will change our entire world. And the promise of Web3, as far as I understand it, is a decentralized ledger where information can be uploaded into this transparent and authenticated virtual space. And then it can be retrieved as necessary. And you can charge fees for putting the information up and down and and there's gas tax, there's all this stuff. But at its core, that's the idea that there is this ledger that is both transparent and a source of truth that we've all seen what happened with, you know, the, the rise and fall of many cryptocurrencies and whether or not you believe that's the future and sort of NFTs are going to be whatever. I don't really care about that. But what I've thought from a bigger picture is like, this always felt like it was a solution looking for a problem. And we threw lots of like, ridiculous things at it, like these shit coins and the NFT bubbles and what have you. And like the core technology was very cool, but the applications of it were totally juvenile. Yep. There, there was no sort of like real world impact of any of these things. Yep. But we have this universal problem here of understanding how much stuff goes into the things we make for lack of a, you know, to, to put it bluntly. and. If we were to be able to take the process of global manufacturing and apply this idea of creating a transparent and authenticated ledger at every step, Mm -hmm. you could take the technology involved in creating the platforms that underpin Web3 and apply it to this idea of carbon accounting or materials-based manufacturing accounting in general. So this problem of like, Who's doing the math? How much is that transparency trustworthy? And how much of it can be even verified, right? Like what percent transparent is this supply chain? Is something that could be authenticated and verified and audited through this public ledger as opposed to digging into a really obscure individualized process depending on the company or the product that you're looking at. So as somebody who lives in this world of carbon accounting and 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 measurement, I don't know what your NFT wallet looks like or your cryptocurrency account, but like, what do you think about this? Like, is there something there? I think so. Well, actually, I have to fully agree. Well, first of all, I mean, my knowledge on on cryptos and NFTs is also not very, very good. 
But indeed, at the moment that I started to understand what the whole technology behind it was about, that was one of the first things that I was actually thinking. But well, there's two issues there. First of all, at the input side, you need to be sure that the one who is putting in the information is also not lying and is actually putting in the real information because you're taking away a third party set of eyes there. And second of all, I mean, you're still sharing information throughout the supply chain, which is becoming publicly accessible. And that's the whole point that most companies have a problem with. They do not want their uh, information in their supply chain to be publicly available. It's all competitor sensitive information. And it's the stuff that we are working with uh, that we are writing in this report, but those reports never become public. It's the, the, the summary of those reports that we have to you know, build up and, and, and let be verified by another third party. Uh, that's the stuff that is coming out and all the competitive se- competitor sensitive information has been taken out there. So yes, it can definitely be a very strong solution on, you know, on, uh, on uh, indeed carbon accounting, especially sharing information through the supply chain, but there's still uh, those two issues that need to be I don't know, moved around. I'm sure there's a solution for it. I don't know if there is. I think you're seeing it. There's some places that I've seen this type of idea applied. For instance, there's some type of of heavy material construction that is including some some sort of blockchain verified materials processes. So like if you're building a building and you want to know, does this building contain potentially harmful or toxic chemicals in the construction of it so that when I tear it down, there's some way to know, is there something volatile in here or something that's toxic before I throw it into some sort of public, you know, yeah, for waste removal. That's a really narrow use case, right? But I guess you're right. There has to be incentive to want to do that, to do the work of having a third-party verification process at the input stage so that there is trust in it. And then forcing some kind of radical transparency, to borrow a phrase, that becomes the norm, either because it's compelled by governments or investors or consumers or most likely all three. Yeah. But there is also even because in actually in uh, in the Netherlands specifically, we have this thing which is called um, a material passport for constructions. Um, and it's a thing that's currently being developed. And one of the biggest discussions is actually like, how are we going? It's just simply the, the whole document. What is the document? You know, people are indeed like, oh, let's put it in a ledger or make it a NFT or make it whatever secured kind of form. But then the question is, you know, a comp or a building is there for what, 75 to 100 years. So if we want to be sure that in the future that we can read uh, that document, then we need to also be sure that we are now point picking the right form uh, of, of passport. And then, you know, there is a lot of people who are actually saying, like, why would we be so difficult and not just share a piece of paper and put it in an archive because then we're at least sure that in a hundred years we can still read it uh, and it's still compatible with uh, uh, you know with our software so to say because for paper you of course only need your eyes so even there there's this <laughs> there's this wait uh, so this <laughs> the, the counter argument is like 
But but what if what if computers break? Like what if I forget my well, password? Not to like, not specifically break. It's more do we still have the technology in seventy five years, or is the technology done so oh far out? If the apocalypse happens that that we we are unable to update things, like yeah, I think we're gonna have bigger fish yep. to fry. And like, do you yep. really think if that's the case, then somebody's gonna be like, oh well, thank God that Yoast like wrote that down. Otherwise, we'd never know. Like, let's make sure we... Yeah, in this fire-resistant cabinet, you know, because... yeah, Right, perfect. Yeah. That, that's a very backward-looking view. It's like, we... Technology is not going to slow down the pace of innovation. If anything, it's going to increase. And so the idea to say, if you want to have a physical backup of something, that's totally fine. But to negate adapting to new technologies in, in favor of exclusively having a physical backup of something feels like a very intentionally Luddite. What we need are solutions that begin to match the scale of the problem. And so those types of solutions are going to need to reach beyond our grasp, right? They're going to need to be things that we have not yet really, if not invented, at least become come to terms with our things that could be possible. What does the world look like in the looking backwards and saying we have solved this because necessarily we will have done things that we did not, that we do not currently do or did not intend. Yeah. Well, I always like to give the examples of, uh, you know, two uh, things that we did fix. Uh, so the ozone layer, uh, the hole in the ozone layer above Australia has been shrinking already for about 20 years. That's something that we all achieved. Uh, then there was the case of acid rains. Uh, we solved that. But having said that, those two issues relative to global warming have been a piece of cake. Uh, but I mean, if you ask me, you know, what what has to happen over the coming years? Well, it's quite effing simple. You know, there's two things that need to happen. First of all, if you have a business or an organization or any kind of responsibility, reduce your carbon emissions right now as far as possible. And second of all, Take your responsibility for past emissions, because if we are now reducing our carbon emissions to zero in 2030, we're still shit. In the end, we need to go to carbon zero emissions and then go negative because otherwise we're still where. I mean, the kids of our kids will not have a very pleasant life if we keep uh, or if we don't do that. I think that's a wonderful place to wrap this up then. Um, Yos, thank you very much for coming on board. Uh, Thank you for lending us your perspective and just in general for being a great guy. Well, thank you very much. And likewise, it's been a, an honor to get to know you over the past two years. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who's Saving the Planet. We will be back after Labor Day with another story of somebody who is saving the planet. Please tune in. And as always, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to. Tell a friend. Everything helps get the word out. And of course, you can email us at hello at whosavingtheplanetpod.com. That's hello at whosavingtheplanetpod.com with thoughts, feedback, guest suggestions, whatever you need. All right. See you next week. Bye.